0: Hello and welcome to State of Crime. One state, two murders, lots of crime. With Kaylin and Elena. Hi Kaylin. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Life is
1: good? Yeah, work sucks, but they changed my work schedule. And of course oh. you're over here on summer vacation. Yes. Ha 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 ha.
0: But I, honestly, so <laughs> I'm on summer break, right? I've already bought a new teacher planner for next year, <laughs> <laughs> and I honestly I have so many things going on this summer that are school-related that it almost feels like I'm not getting a vacation, but yeah. that's okay, too, so. But, um, so this week, we are heading to the lovely state of Missouri. Yes. Back on schedule here. Yes, yes. We're back on schedule, and we kind of feel like we might be living in the Midwest around here lately, right. because we've had crazy awesome thunderstorms. I love it. I love that we are
1: actually getting a spring. We normally don't get a spring here in Mount Home. We, it, it goes from summer to winter. And yeah. Sometimes you get all four seasons in one day. Yes. It'll be raining and then it's 80 degrees and then it's snowing and it's just... Right.
0: But I love the thunderstorms. The bad thing is... I've had a million cats in my life. Like, I'm a crazy cat lady, have been from a very young age. I've never, ever seen a cat that was terrified by thunderstorms. I have a cat that's scared of the thunder.
1: Well, I was... And the lightning. T- right. I was there... I was talking about it the other day about how I was really excited that my dog does so well with thunderstorms. She normally does pretty okay with thunderstorms, but, like, fireworks on Fourth of July is not her thing, so right. I normally send her out to my parents because they're, like, out of town. hmm And... Of course, the other day, we had, like, three storms in in a matter of, like, two and a half, three hours. Right. And that day, she was
0: not having it. Okay. It, yeah. It was... My dog also hates fireworks and things like that, but she does not care about thunderstorms. Yeah. They have not bothered her at all, so I've been I'm I'm curious if it was, because
1: I had the window open, so it was, like, Maybe. louder, and she was just not having it. Yeah. But I'm loving
0: it. Yeah, me too. So... Well, once again, you are to thank for my case. And I just, like, I i don't think our listeners understand <laughs> how much of the podcast is thanks to Kaylin. <laughs> like, I research stories, and I tell stories, and that's what I do. And Kaylin does everything else. And she just deserves, like, all the credit in the world for this being what it is. So, but um, once again, you sent me a good historical case. And I love it because, and I sent this case to you Earlier than I normally send you Mm -hmm. cases.
1: Normally, it's like a day or two before we record that I'm like, hey, have you found something?
0: And I'm always like, no.
1: And this one I sent about a week and a half before. And I don't remember anything about it. I don't even remember like a little bit about it. Like the (laughs) premise
0: of it. (laughs) Well, and it's honestly, it's a case that I'm actually surprised. I'd never even heard of this case. And when you first sent it to me, it's called the Young Brothers Massacre. And I was immediately thinking of like the Young Brothers that ran around with Jesse James because they were also from Missouri.
1: Okay.
0: And, um, but, or, or at least I think that ties in Missouri. Maybe they weren't, I'll have to do some checking on that. But anyway, once I get into the details here, I think everyone will be surprised that this case isn't better known. So, although when I did start my research, there was quite a few resources online for it, and I even found a PBS documentary. Now, it was a local PBS station in Missouri called Ozark's Watch Magazine, but if it's on PBS, I'm usually pretty comfortable with using that as a source because I feel like they probably done their research and all of that sort yeah. of stuff. And the guy who was interviewed on this particular episode, in fact, has written a book. Um, his name is Bruce Davis and he wrote a book called we're dead. Come on in <laughs> and you'll find out why he chose that title in a few uh, towards the end of my story here. But there were, there's a couple of other books out there too that I found. So, um, and I guess there is a docudrama that was, um, done and apparently is available on Amazon Prime. So hmm. it's it's one of those weird things, you know, yeah. that there seems to be a lot out there, and yet it seems like this is something that should be better known. So this is the Young Brothers Massacre. It took place... Um, just outside of Brookline, Missouri, which is now part of Republic, which is right outside of Springfield. So, Because okay. um, you're going to hear a lot of references to Springfield in here, too. That's
1: where mine's based out of, so this is exciting. Ah,
0: yeah. So, what was very interesting about this, though, this was the worst loss of law enforcement officers up until 9-11.
1: That is insanity. And now that you say that, like a little bit of what... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all that I knew about it was a law enforcement thing, which yeah. it was. I didn't actually know. Anything. Yeah,
0: and even the guy, Bruce Davis, who, who wrote the book, and like I said, I, I based most of my narrative off of his interview. I looked at some other sources and picked up little tidbits here and there. But even he said that he, who... I guess, li- has always lived in Missouri. He prides himself on being a historian, you know, knowing a lot of local stuff. And he was saying in the interview that his first kind of exposure to this was, um, oh, he went to the police department he was because there had been some vandalism at his church. And outside, he noticed that there was a monument with six names on it. And all six of them had died on the 2nd of January, 1932. And he was like, how did I not, you know, at first he said he thought it was a mistake. Like, how could six law enforcement officers have all been killed at the same time and he didn't know about it? And and then he found out that um, one of the law enforcement officers who had been a part of this case who had survived, there were four survivors, uh, there were ten who went out there, Six were killed, four survived. Um, that man's son actually went to his church and huh. yeah, and he actually talked to him a little bit and so yeah, it was it was it was fascinating. and now before we
1: get into this, I would like to yeah. say that cases like that this one's probably going to piss me off. Yes and no. Be- only because I have a really hard time when it comes to crime against police officers, firefighters, yeah. anything like that because these people, while, again, we've said it before, some of them go into it for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. but the majority of these people are trying, they put themselves in dangerous situations right. to keep people safe, yeah. and that bugs me when people purposely go out to hurt them. When they, for the most part,
0: are trying to keep the general public safe. Right. Well, and, and this case is kind of interesting that way, Um I'll save some of that for okay. as I get into yeah, my my narrative because I think I comment a little bit on some of what you're talking about here. I will say this maybe pissed me off a little less than some of our recent cases. Um, not that it's not horrifically tragic or anything like that, mm. but um, I, I'm not sure how to state this, so I, I'll just put it aside. but okay. anyway, so um. So the young brothers, there were actually three of them, Okay. although only two of them were involved in this massacre, and I could not find any evidence as to why the one was not. So there are three young brothers, Paul, who's the oldest, uh, Jennings, and Harry Young, and that's their order as well.
1: Okay.
0: Um, they were three of 11 children. Jesus. I know.
1: A lot of kids.
0: <laughs> who were um, born to what by all accounts were, you know, Christian, God-fearing couple who owned a hundred acre farm. And um, like I said, right outside of S- Springfield. Now, these three boys, however, Seem to have been in trouble from a very young age. Okay. They were what we would now call juvenile delinquents um, The local law enforcement knew all of them. They even had a nickname They were known as oh, I wrote it down here, but now I can't find it um, Oh, they were known as the young triumvirate and of course the triumvirate's kind of a callback to The very, very early days of the Roman Empire, when Julius Caesar was put into power with two other um, rulers, so that, you know, it shows that, you know, they kind of had this kind of mythic sort of reputation, at least locally. Yeah. Um, Their main business was stealing cars. Okay. And all three of them had served time in the Missouri State Penitentiary, which has the nickname Old Jeff, for burglary and theft.
1: Wow.
0: <laughs> Why? I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just, that was one of those things I was like, I should probably look that up, and then I did it. So. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, and then Paul and Jennings, again, the two oldest, had also served time at Leavenworth. And again, I don't know the details of all of that. Um, but again, as well-known as they were, they really weren't viewed as being violent until the 2nd of June, 1929. Okay. And on that date, Harry, who was the youngest, was driving with an accomplice very erratically through Republic, Missouri, and they were stopped by the city marshal, a guy named Mark Noe, and Harry murdered him. His body was found in a ditch. And so this is the first time that things get super violent. Harry immediately goes on the run. And for the next two and a half years, successfully lays low. His two brothers, Paul and Jennings, also seem to have joined him and to have been a part of this. But like I said, Paul drops out of the narrative, and for the life of me, I could not find out what happened to him. I tried, but um, if I'd had more time... I probably could. So, for those two and a half years, they are living in Texas under false names. They are indulging in their business of car theft. The FBI said they had one of the largest car theft rings. It reached all the way to the West Coast. Damn! Yeah. So, apparently what they would do is, they seem to have been headquartered there in Dallas. Okay. And they would cross the border into Oklahoma and that's where it seems like they stole the majority of their cars and then they would ship them out to the west coast and they had like this huge ring seemed to be very successful huh now one thing to remember is that um you know the 1930s are what we call the public enemy era this is the Bonnie and Clyde you know sort of mm-hmm. thing where a lot of criminals, people like Bonnie and Clyde, people like the Young Brothers, and then also people who are associated with um, uh, organized crime, the mafia, like Pretty Boy Floyd, and you know, those sorts of people, okay. were talked a lot about in the press. And there was this, you know, as much as you know, they were declared, you know, public enemy, mm-hmm. you hear public enemy number one, the FBI's after them, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, there was also kind of a lot of public support for these sorts of people. You know, they they were kind of the anti-heroes, and a lot of people felt like because of the Depression that banks had betrayed them and that there was a lot in organized society that had victimized them. So a lot of people looked at them as Robin Hood kind of characters. Oh. Even though they may not have been helping anybody but themselves. <laughs> but themselves. yeah. But there was still, like I said, there was a lot of public sentiment that seems to have gone on their side. Huh. And um, like Bonnie and Clyde, uh, the young brothers often visited home. There's pretty good evidence that they often went back to the family farm, huh. uh, usually for very short periods of time, of course, yeah. but that they were there. And, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, of course, were infamous, too, for, you know, going to family picnics and yeah. family reunions and that sort of yeah. thing. So, um, somewhere, the dates here get a little fuzzy. Some of the sources said it was the 31st of December. Some sources say it's the 1st of January of 1931 or thirty two. right? Okay. Um, two young women, Lorena and Benita Young, show up in Springfield trying to sell a used car and the person they're trying so they're at a dealership going to sell it there and the person that they're interacting with notices that the paperwork's a little wonky because it's not in their name and again sources here varied some said that you know you got the young sisters you got a car with some shady paperwork so that immediately they went to law enforcement other sources said that um, they kind of ignored it for a day or two, and they were probably hoping that the girls just wouldn't come back mm-hmm. because everyone knew, right? It's the Young family, Young family, shady cars.
1: I don't know <laughs> why. going on? Why would they do it in their hometown? Is my question. I feel like that sounds really stupid. That was just. A, I feel like that was terrible planning in their part. If they have such a huge successful business Mm -hmm. and I put that in air quotes since nobody (laughs) can see me aside from you if they have this like huge business where they're successfully stealing cars and shipping them to all over the country why would they be stupid enough to try to sell a stolen car in their hometown,
0: where their name is big. Right, and that's what I was wondering too, and I, I don't know the answer That just to It that. just sounds stupid. Yeah, I don't know if in one of these books possibly that's addressed. Or maybe it's just hubris. Yeah. You know, maybe they're just cocky at this point. Like I said, Harry, you know, they, Harry's been on the land for two and a half years at this point. Maybe they're feeling like, hey, we're untouchable. Yeah. Who, who hmm. knows? But anyway. Stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell masses. <them> <laughs> on the 2nd of January, it gets even more stupid because the sisters return to the car dealership with the paperwork supposedly changed or whatever. And of course, there are police officers there. The girls are immediately arrested. They're taken down to the police station. They're questioned. And they obviously don't want to give up any yeah. evidence. So they basically refuse to say anything about their brothers. And the police decide to, that they're just going to go out to the family farm. Okay. And check on things there. Now, remember, Harry's the wanted one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the brothers Paul and Jennings also have an extensive past. Although, I believe at the time, neither of them was actively wanted. It's okay. just Harry who has this murder warrant hanging over his head. And like I said, I don't even know where Paul is at this point. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, So they go to the farmhouse, and as they, you know, everyone in the area seems to either have been scared of the young brother gang or, like I said, possibly had some sympathy to them. And it was kind of interesting because the sheriff, a guy named Sheriff Hendricks, and I'll explain how he gets involved in in just a moment, he knew the family very, very well. He went to the same church as you know, the rest of the young family. And he seems to have thought that because of this, because he knew them, that there wouldn't be any trouble. Hmm. And he was tragically wrong. So the way that Sheriff Hendricks got into this was, like I said, the girls were taken down to the police station. They're questioned. This is an era where police jurisdictions have very, very definitive boundaries. Okay. So the girls are arrested within the town. So that gives the police jurisdiction. However, the family farm lies out in the county. So that's where Sheriff Hendricks comes in. Okay. So he and um, Wiley Mashburn and Ollie Crosswhite are all associated with the county law enforcement. They come down to the police station and meet up with Detective Tony Oliver, who was the ranking officer with the city police. And in addition, men named Sid Meadows, Charlie Hauser, Virgil Johnson, and Ben Bilyeu. All of these men pile into two cars and head out towards the farm. Now that seems kind of crazy to us today. Yeah. But again, you know, law enforcement was very different during this time period. And you had the idea, too, like I said, that Sheriff Hendricks felt like, I know these people, there's not going to be a problem, Uh right? A little later, in another car, two other men come out, a guy named Owen Brown and Frank Pike Jr., and they follow in a third car. Um, I feel like with someone who thinks that there's not going to be a problem, he sure is bringing a lot of people. Well, like I said, the reason for that is that you've got both the city saying, this is our case, and then you've got the county being pulled in. Okay, okay. So, you have two different... Yeah,
1: there sure is a lot of people going out Yeah, you
0: have two different law enforcement entities who are involved in this. Yeah, And, like I said, that was pretty typical at the time. You know what I mean? That... Even today, like, if you watch a lot of crime shows, Mm -hmm. you know, you often see where one, you know, law enforcement officer comes in and is like, this is our jurisdiction, we're taking over, Uh and then, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. It was much more of an issue back then than it is now. Okay. Uh, You know, I think law enforcement agencies, there's a lot more cooperation. Now. Yes. Yeah. Than you used to see. And even these guys, there doesn't seem to have been, like, any animosity or anything like that. It's just this idea that we're moving outside the city limits, so we need the county there to make sure that this is done properly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, And then apparently there was a civilian by the name of Wegman who may also have been part of this, and he stayed apparently in Pike's car, but that also kind of got dropped out of the narrative. So anyway, you have 10 people heading out to the farm. And... All they took with them were their sidearms, their handguns. They didn't take any extra ammo. And all of these are signs, like I said, that Sheriff Hendricks really thought this is not going to be an issue. You know, I know these people, and
1: either yeah.
0: either they are not there, like because they had had a lot of these wild goose chases where they got reports that they were at the family farm or you know whatever, and they'd yeah. go try to find them and they'd be gone. So. It's about 3:34 o'clock in the afternoon. Now remember it's the 2nd of January. Okay. So it gets dark very early. Yes. So it's already, you know, starting to get to that kind of twilighty sort of a thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first two cars meet up at the young family farm. They look around. They can't see any other automobiles on the place. And they kind of think, well, may- probably nobody's home. This has turned out to be another wild goose chase in fact. Um, The mother was also not at home. She was in Springfield apparently visiting some family members or some friends, I guess it was. Now, when the men first drove up to the place and met up, they also don't seem to have made a lot of effort to hide or to remain out of sight. And when I was watching the documentary, They went to the farmhouse, which still stands and supposedly is haunted, by the way. So, you also got the haunting in there for me. Thank you very much. Um, And they said that anyone inside of the farmhouse, it would have been very easy for them to see these people standing out front. Yeah. Now, there are several trees out front, which are quite a bit bigger now than they would have been back then, that would have given, you know, some shelter that you could stand behind. Yeah. But that's about it. So, Mashburn. Sheriff Hendricks and Johnson, they just walk right up to the front door. And they knock on it. There's no answer. Apparently, they have a skeleton key. And, you know, skeleton keys, there's not a lot of variation. Yeah. So they even try that in the lock. It doesn't work. But while they're there on the front porch near the front door, Mashburn says that he can definitely hear somebody inside. Even though, to all appearances, nobody's home. Nobody's home. So Johnson takes a thing of tear gas, a canister of tear gas, and he throws it into an upstairs window. Again, nothing. So they make their way toward the back of the house where there's a kitchen door. Okay. Okay. So, again, accounts varied here. One of them that I read said that they kicked it open. Another one said, you know, they threw their shoulders into the kitchen door. The door flies open. And immediately, there are two shotgun blasts. One hits Mashburn in the face. It doesn't kill him immediately, though he does die. Hendricks, the sheriff who knew these people, thought there was going to be no problem, is hit in the chest and probably died instantly. Like I said, these were shotgun blasts at pretty close range. Yeah. Yeah, and there were some photos that were also shown. They didn't show the actual bodies, but they showed where they'd been lying, and I mean, there was just pools of blood still there, so it was pretty gruesome. Um, with the deaths of Hendricks and Mashburn, Tony Oliver, the city detect, police detective, is now the ranking officer and in charge. He immediately sends Johnson and Bill Yu into town. He says, you guys get in a car, go get help. Because obviously things are immediately out of control, have taken a turn for the worst. So this leaves six officers still there. And they're clustered around the house, hiding behind these trees the best that they can. Hauser and Meadows both get hit. And they are both killed with single shots to the forehead from a rifle. Okay. So obviously Jennings and Harry Young can shoot. Yes. And a lot of subsequent testimony about the case, you know, they were both avid hunters. Of course with a shotgun at close range, you don't have to be yeah. a great shot.
1: You're gonna you're gonna hit somebody if you're that close to him. Right.
0: Him but obviously Jennings was an excellent shot and he's the one who has the rifle. Um Oliver is hiding behind a tree. And like I said, in the video I watched, you know, they're pretty wide. Back then they would have been much narrower. Yeah. And he's just under a barrage from Harry's shotgun and Jennings' rifle. So there's, you know, ammo flying everywhere. There's pieces of the tree flying off. So it's not a good spot for him. He ends up leaving his his hiding place to try to find someplace better and gets shot and killed. Um, Crosswhite had been had been seen going up closer to the house and he too is killed. Now when they get a chance to examine his body, the coroner claims that he was killed at very close range but he was outside the house. And so there's some speculation that Jennings, maybe that Crosswhite was incapacitated and that Jennings dashed outside of the house, shot him at close range and then ran back in uh, in the house. But nobody ever saw him outside. So, huh. and again, you can imagine it was chaos, you yeah. know. And so, um, but just, you know, a, a, an odd little tidbit. So, of course, it's getting dark, um, By this time, I mean, the shootout doesn't last that long. But it's totally chaos. Rescuers do start to arrive, first by the tens and then the hundreds. And then, I mean, the place just gets overwhelmed by people very, very quickly. People just basically jump in their cars and head out there from town when they hear this. Yeah, that they hear, well, this is their sheriff. You know, these are people that they know. Um, One guy claims that he did see people. That, so when they left, they said that the barn door was closed. But when they come back, they say the barn door is open and there are a bunch of cars inside the barn. So that explains why when they drove up, looked like nobody was there. Yeah. Um, one guy claims that he does see two figures dart out. And like I said, by now it's fairly dark and that he shoots and he's pretty sure he hits one of them. Um, and there's evidence later on that Harry was shot through the hand at this time. Uh Okay. And they make their way to Springfield, probably on foot, steal a car there. They get to the Dallas area where they seem to have been headquartered up for the past two and a half years. They wreck the car and then they hitch a ride into Houston. Now they had other family members in Houston. Don't know if they were maybe trying to reach them, get their help, whatever. Okay. So in 1932, the 2nd of January fell on a Saturday. Okay. So all of this goes down starting at three thirty, four 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday. By Tuesday morning, the police have located the young brothers, Jennings and Harry, which is amazing given what had happened, right, for the last two and a half years. Yeah. They are in Houston. They had rented a cottage. And it's now, like I said, Tuesday, the 5th of January. So just a couple of days later. Now, the police in Houston play it much, much safer than the sheriff had.
1: I hope so. Yes.
0: So they bring in a ton of officers, all of them exceedingly well-armed, both with firearms and tear gas. They surround the cottage Throw in tear gas. There's a huge exchange of gunfire as well. And pretty quickly, the Young Brothers are overpowered. Police officers make their way into the house. And they hear a voice call out from the bathroom. We're dead. Come on in. So that's where the guy got the title for his book. And when they get into the bathroom, they find Jennings is already dead and Harry is dying.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: The coroner who did the autopsy, he's the one who looks and says, yeah, Harry got shot in the hand, you know, back on the 2nd of January. comes to the conclusion that they shot each other in order to evade capture. Huh. That they managed to, you know, escape from the barrage of the police bullets and did this. Now, the guy who wrote the book um, said, you know, why is this case not better known? Yeah. And I thought that was interesting, too, because, I mean, to have six, poli- you know, law enforcement officers all murdered on the same day trying to apprehend these criminals, it- it's odd to me. I'd never heard of this case before. Yeah. You know, and like I said, it's not till 9-11 that we have this many die, you know, that, it, that this record is beaten. Yeah. Um, his hypothesis, Bruce Davis's hypothesis was maybe people just didn't want to talk about it. And I can see that something so incredibly painful, you know, and I mean, it's a community, like I said, where people do know each other. Mm -hmm. Um, there's the betrayal of this family, you the sheriff. Do you know what I mean? So there's these personal connections where you have what we traditionally associate with small town values, really turn against you um and he also points out that just a couple months later is the Lindbergh baby kidnapping okay and of course that That was huge yes that takes over every bit of reporting in the country Um, what is interesting about this case is it's kind of like columbine you know columbine really changed law enforcement columbine prior to columbine The general attitude in law enforcement was you secure the perimeter of an active shooter, you know, Mm -hmm. and you wait outside, basically. After Columbine, they said, no, you go in, you find, you confront. Yeah. And this case, obviously, also really changed how you approach suspects, that no matter what, you always go in with planning and forethought and a whole lot of caution. Yeah. So. Because you never really, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So that is the tale of the Young Brothers Massacre. Okay, so that
1: didn't make me as mad as I thought it would. No,
0: unless it's a horrible tragedy. It is. But, you know, I think when you have people who are killed in the line of duty like this, I don't want to say it makes it better. It doesn't. But it's not not the same as if these were just law enforcement officers who were targeted
1: because they were law enforcement officers and that's why they were killed. They were killed because they were pursuing these people. Right. So you're right. That's, there is a big difference there
0: and it's still horrible, you know, and, and tragic, but, um, yeah. So,
1: yeah, I like that. Yeah. I like that one. That was interesting. It is strange that it's not more widely known.
0: That's, yeah, like I said, I I never heard of this before, and I, I do, I think that's a little bit odd. I wonder how well it's known in the state of Missouri. Maybe mm-hmm. people know what they're... And I keep saying Missouri, because I've heard people say that's how you're supposed to say it. I don't know, Missouri, Missouri, but whatever. I'm going to say Missouri, just because that's <laughs> what I've always known. I know, well... But, um, yeah, this is one of those things that I feel like should be, you know, maybe, especially yeah. because it did have a big impact on... And I'm thinking, I was going to look up when Bonnie and Clyde were caught, because, you know, they were ambushed. And the way that case was handled was actually kind of the 180 of this, where you had law enforcement, you know, were were tipped off to where they would be. They lay in wait. They set a trap, which today you would never get away with.
1: So, Bonnie and Clyde were caught and killed on
0: May 23rd, 1934. So, I wonder, too, how much this case and what happened to these law enforcement officers maybe informed the decision to take them the way they were taken. Which, yeah. I mean, it was just an ambush. you yeah. know, And they weren't even given a chance yeah, no. to surrender. I mean, the car pulled up and they just opened fire on them. Yeah. Which, today, you could never do that. No, no, no. But, um... And it was there was a lot. It was a lot of. Bullets. Oh, it was it was over a hundred rounds were fired. I yeah. mean, it's, it, it was an absurd amount. It was that was an overkill. Right, and that's what I'm saying. These yeah. two cases side by side are very interesting. Where mm-hmm. here you have like this very trusting kind of naive approach, and theirs was like you know the antithesis of that. So I would like I, I would be interested to know if there was any connection. Yeah. But. Yeah,
1: that was a good one. I did good that with that one. You did do good. I did like do I, good. I said,
0: it's not one of those where you're just super angry and frustrated and helpless at the end, Yeah, you know, and, you know, they died and took each other right. out apparently, so saved the state a lot of money. And yeah, yeah. There you go.
1: That was a pretty good one. All right. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that one. Okay. You did good. Thank
0: you. You did good. I'm it. I guess. All right. I'm looking forward to hearing yours, too. Mine,
1: so. Yeah. Mine's different. It okay. Well, it's different from this. All right. And it's, <laughs> I had a hard time picking this week. All right. Well, but we'll see. We'll look see forward to it. So, if you have any suggestions for us, make sure you email us at stateofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. And check out our Facebook and our Instagram and our Twitter. Don't look at
0: Twitter. I haven't updated Twitter in like a month. Uh,
1: Instagram's (laughs) been rough for a while, too, actually. But we are pretty active on our discussion group on Facebook. So if you want to talk with us anywhere, that would probably be the best place to go.
0: I made a great post about yours and Maria's uh, Washington case just today. So go check that out. I haven't looked at that yet. Check that one out. So thank you for listening. See you next time.